Welcome to What's Underneath, the podcast that will inspire you to accept the skin you're in and step into your most whole, powerful self. I'm Lily Mandelbaum, and sitting next to me is my mom, Elisa Goodkind, and we are the creators of Style Like You. In our podcast, we bring you the extended interviews from our video series, The What's Underneath Project, in which diverse role models strip down to open up and claim the power of the skin they're in. The first step to self-acceptance is being radically honest about the things you're ashamed of. And by listening to these stories, you are tapping into the healing power of vulnerability, truth sharing, and the unshakable bravery to be yourself. You're giving yourself permission to recognize that you are completely beautiful and enough as you are. Hi, Mom. Hi, Lils. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. A little it's a hard, hard to answer that question, I find, these yeah. days. Obviously, good is not the whole story. No, I'm kind of very much reevaluating how to answer that question. I I'm actually find it very difficult. To actually, out that's how funny. To do it. That's funny that you should say that because Janaea. Oh shit! It's the vet calling. <laughs> Hold on. Sorry about that, everyone. That was my dog's vet calling. My six-month-old puppy that I adopted during the pandemic. Um, got into some chocolate last night and got chocolate poisoning. And I just had to bring her back to the vet because she was acting a little strange. So that was the vet giving me an update, which I guess is sort of pertinent to the notion of how are like how ridiculous of a question, how are you is because so much is going on in every given moment, emotionally, <laughs> these days, especially. Um, and I was just going to say before the vet called that the whole question of how are you and how hard that is to answer during the pandemic is Something that Jenea, who is the storyteller guest that we are introducing right now, something they talk a lot about in the beginning of their episode when we, because the first question we always ask our subjects and what's underneath is, how are you feeling right now? And Jenea laughed when we asked them that question because there's just so much at play going on right now and so many layers to unpack related to that question that they they laughed when we asked it and, and, and answered it for about 20 minutes in the interview. So you'll hear their answer shortly. It's pretty profound, like everything they say is. The first person whose story we're sharing with you today is someone who's no stranger to the Style Like You platform and the podcast. We actually interviewed them in 2019. Their name is Jenea The Future, and they are a gender nonconforming activist, orator, and uh, one of the founding members of Black Lives Matter Toronto. We interviewed them for our closet video and podcast a couple of years ago, but then always sort of felt that we still needed to put them on the what's underneath stool to share their story in that format because there's something just so powerful about that form of storytelling. And so during the protest in June of 2020, my mom and I were just extraordinarily inspired by the wisdom that they were sharing on their Instagram live in, in a series that they call their Sunday sermons where they were talking, you know, in a really beautiful, unifying, and genius way about racism and the construct of whiteness. And uh, Jenea just does it in a way, explains it in a way, and talks about it in a way in terms of helping people who want to help and people who want to be supportive and people who want to understand and, and be allies and be, and be allies and be educated. Uh, as they said in their interview, they had this idea of talking about the things that people are not talking about, like just entering this space. I've thought about that a lot. What an incredibly great idea that is, because there's so much noise out there. It's hard to figure out what to listen to and where to go and you know what's going to really broaden you and open your heart and open your mind in a way that's really going to be constructive and really going to have an effect on the world. And they, and they were the first person we invited to be in the series. And so they're the first person that we're going to be introducing and sharing with you all. And they were the first one that we shot also for the series. From the previous interview that we did about a year and a half ago, we, we find that with all of our interviews, there are a few things that each person says that we live with for our lives. It becomes part of our being, part of our cell structure, and it's something that guides us and Jenea among other things in that first interview, talked about comparing human society to penguins and how penguins circle around each other, protecting each other in a circular motion and taking turns 
protecting the ones that are in the inside of the circle and the inside of the circle slowly move to the outside of the circle and the penguins are all completely connected to each other and and feel a very instinctual need to to protect the other and to be a whole group that organism that functions as one and that that's how you know they saw this society how human society should be it just blew my mind at that time and of course they continue to blow my mind in this interview with many other types of stories and metaphors and analogies and beautiful beautiful symbolism in terms of how our society can heal and how our society can connect in a in a real way and, and in a way that's authentic and in a way that's filled to the brim with the kind of humanity that would actually make our culture sustainable and and connected and whole and happy. Yeah, and, and one of the themes and that I took away or the lessons that I took away from this new episode that you're about to listen to is how our biggest struggle, the thing that we suffer with the most in our lives I feel Janae's story is such an incredible example of how that thing often becomes the driving force towards our greatest offering to the world. So for Janae, a big struggle that they had when they were a teen was this deep terror of being seen and a fear of potentially being forgotten and dying without anyone even noticing. A big struggle in their life was around not being seen and a fear of being seen. And now that has propelled them to not only overcome that and be someone that is now leading a movement, making such an impact with their voice and with their being. Their whole life is driven by the desire to make sure other people are not forgotten and other people are seen. And that's what drives their activism and their desire to create more equality in the world. And so that just really inspires me because I know for me personally, my biggest struggles are 100% what drive me to do Style Like You and to do these interviews. For example, my struggle with my body image is what led me to heal through interviewing others who inspired me to accept my body. And I know my mom's struggle to with being misunderstood and not accepted for who she was by her family growing up has propelled her to do work that is about making others feel seen and accepted for who they are. And so and I feel I feel Janae's interview is another example of that, how our biggest struggles, if we can be conscious of them and confront them, can really propel our life path and can turn into the vulnerable part of ourselves that drives us to want to help others with that same struggle. If, if we can own our struggle, it can turn into something that we can really help others with. And also, I just wanted to say that one of the things that I feel that each of these interviews does for me personally is it creates an understanding that no matter what is on the surface, no matter what appears to be, no matter how someone appears to have it all, doesn't appear to have any problems appears to be invulnerable or appears to be Perfect. not needing anybody or someone else, how untrue that is, how when they talk about that, it literally breaks my heart in half because it's something that I feel so deeply within myself, as Lily mentioned, from my own childhood experiences with being unseen. These are things that you live with your whole life. And we all have dark sides and we all have pain and struggle. And it's not, it's not a bad thing. It's part of, it's part of the whole, it's part of what makes us all beautiful. So it's just, it just never stops to astound me how, how deeply we can connect in the roots, like on this level, despite all of the things that appear to be so different about our lives on the outside. The power of that is monumental. So without further ado, we will let you take a listen to Janaea's interview. I hope you enjoy it. Can you just start by talking about how you're feeling right now? <laughs> I don't know if, when, how your feeling is going to be a normal question again. Someone asked me recently if I felt like the country was at a crossroads. How do I feel? Do I feel like there's some sort of point of no return? Emotionally, I think a part of me does want to feel that way because then it means that I wouldn't have to know what to do to change things when 75 
million people vote for Biden. That's more than any president in U.S. history. And right behind that, 70.8 million people voted for Donald Trump, which is more than Obama in 2008 and in 2012. I don't think there is an answer for that. And that is very difficult for me. I think it's difficult for all of us because I don't think it's, it's going to be one answer. And it's, you know, sorry to take it here around how I'm feeling, but I don't know how to separate the personal from the political, especially now. And I think in this time of pandemic, when people thought that they were paying into a social contract for protection, instead they got precarity. And so I don't know what to do when people are as invested in their bigotry as I am in justice. I don't know how to make that sit right inside. I don't, it's unfathomable, it's unthinkable to me. Um, and so at this moment, how I'm feeling, I can see and feel the power of, of the left. I can feel the pride. And I think that's this idea that you can't be neutral. There is no neutrality. And I have seen with my own eyes, the shields in the storm the line between fascism and freedom. And it's really just us. It's just us. So I won't give in to nihilism, this idea that there's not to be done. Because I do think that there's a part of a kind of political nihilism that fuels chaos on the other side. Because how else, how else can you explain that kind of cannibalism? The need to eat humanity in order to live, that only life can exist through death in that way. So. These are all the thoughts that I have. Um, when people ask me how I'm doing, most of the time I say, I'm doing all right. <laughs> it's been bothering me, this thing. It's immediately, as soon as the election's over, you hear this thing reaching across the aisle. This idea that what do we do with family members who voted for Trump or, and most, more often than not, it's not even family members, it's people we don't know. And there's always, particularly with the democratic establishment, there's this, this idea of we've got to get on to the other side. And right now, at a time when in so many ways, the most undervalued in this country gave us the president that we deserve, at least right now, black people, women of color, trans people. I gotta ask, is it so much easier to reach across the aisle and speak with a bigot than it is a black person? Is it so much harder to sit beside me, the one who's at your shoulder, your ally, your friend, your comrade? Is it so much harder to spend that time with me to confront the reality of me, the history of me, than it is to engage the bigot. While at the highest level of Democrats, they're saying defund the police is too much, too radical. Socialism is too much, too radical, despite the fact that the majority of Democrats who ran on Medicare for all and on the Green New Deal, the majority of them were voted back into office. There's never going to be a time where white people can solve the problem of racial injustice through the study of whiteness. That at the heart of it is what we must confront because that is what enabled us to get here. That norm. We have to remember that normal required Occupy, Black Lives Matter, Standing Rock, the Women's March, No Muslim Ban, Families Belong Together, Parkland, Me Too. That was normal. And there is a way that activists and activism is condemned under a democratic president. We are the despised when a Democrat is in office. And so if we really want things to change, we've got to get to the root of how we got here in the first place. And I don't feel confident that our current leadership at the political level in the highest offices of establishment Democrats, I don't believe that they are the ones that are gonna steer us through. I don't think that they are the champions that we deserve. I don't think that they are ready and willing to confront what the GOP has become. Um, and I think that there are a group of young people, insurgents, as they would be called, like the squad, you know, AOC and Ilhan, and Rachel, Ayana. I think there are people who are clamoring to get in and establishment Dems are undercutting them uh, every opportunity and they will make it more and more difficult for people who are more aligned with our politics, the kinds of politics that win elections, let's be really clear. And there's something very, I think, frightening about that. 
that sort of change. And I, it's inevitable, which means that we're inevitable. And we have to remember that, um, that even in the hardest moments, that there's something ex so exceedingly powerful about what we're doing. But that, um, that notion of reaching across the aisle when you won't even look to your shoulder, right, has been something that's deeply troubling me. It's something to really look at in ourselves. On another note, can you talk about what your style says about you? <laughs> what my style says about me? I don't know what it says about me, but I can tell you what it says to me. And as someone who's very comfortably uh, non-binary, so much of, to, to be non-binary, and particularly the way that I present, so much of how I'm perceived is based on the energy. The ways in which we locate people are uh, by very arbitrarily enforced rules and standards. Um, and I can move through different ones because more often than not, I'm confusing um, to people. They're, they don't really know what I am. And I like that, but I had to learn how to like that because I think I was punished for it for a while. I, was, I wasn't pretty enough. I have a twin sister and she's very feminine and um, very pretty. And her hair sort of grows down, whereas my hair grew out. And there is a way in general that there's uh, ugly comparisons between women that are made by society. There are horrible comparisons made between sisters, certainly, and family members. Mm -hmm. And then there's a way with a twin that the kinds of comparisons uh, cut down self-esteem with a surgical precision. Um, and so mm -hmm. I grew up understanding very intimately that I was the ugly one. I was too boyish, too odd looking, too sullen. Uh, I was mostly front. The face that I have now is pretty much the face I've always had. <laughs> so, um, and you know, my head was shaved because my hair was too much to take care of. And so I was very often seen and understood to be a boy. My, a body like mine is now celebrated, at least in the world of fashion. How does what you're wearing right now express where you are? You know, I like an oversized jean. I think um, I like the masculinity in it. I think they should all be tapered, personally, for me, um, when worn with boots. Um, but I, I like that it feels uh, very, um, and the light blue reminds me of a different time. You know, um, of those early 2000s, I was like a heavy combat boot. Makes me feel like um, it sort of speaks to the discipline and military-oriented part of the organizing work that appeals to me. I typically would not wear this overshirt, but it's cold. <laughs> so, um, but when I'm usually wearing this button-down, it's oversized and I would wear it with no shirt underneath and usually loose up into the midsection. And that was, again, my chest was something that I really wanted to hide all the time. It made me uncomfortable. It made me feel nervous because I wouldn't know what kind of energy I was inviting. So it feels good to be able to celebrate that for myself. I haven't had any kind of, you know, top surgery or anything like that. And even still, that, that, you know, that body is one that is punished for its sort of ambiguity. Mm -hmm. You would punish ambiguity here. That's mm -hmm. what happens when you live in a sort of binary kind of informed world. Mm -hmm. And I've thought about those moments often, though, because I like asking myself really big questions that I just brood over for days, weeks, months, or years. Why are pronouns so offensive to people? Like, they really do respond poorly with pronouns. And you've got to ask yourself, why? I think it's two things. One, it's what you feel inside when you've never really ever known what it's like to be you. You spent so much time becoming a contortionist to fit into a status quo that was never meant for you that seeing someone else do that, be that audacious, it does something to you. We're resentful, we're angry, and we don't see it as an invitation you spent so much time shrinking yourself. So I think that's part of it. The other part of it is this, if people like me can exist, and if we can assert things like they, even though we use it all the time when we're talking about FedEx or whatever, did they come yet? <laughs> even though it's a single loan driver. And even though they was used very prolifically back in the day, 
what it means if people like me can exist, and if we can insert changes in language, and we can challenge a binary that exists, like masculine and feminine, or male and female. It mm -hmm. means that all the other immutable truths mm -hmm. that are organized around binaries in our society are not so immutable as we think. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is what people are responding to as well. One of the funniest things that informs so much of my experience with people is that uh, they, I come across as very intense and very unapproachable, I think, for some people, um, and not at all for others. But it isn't, for the, those who find me unapproachable, I'm so curious about that all the time, because um, I think it's the frown. I frown quite a bit. And uh, definitely in my younger years, there was a lot of assumptions about me because of that, but I'm mostly just thinking and so there was a situation, I remember when I first uh, started to do human rights work. My coworkers were all white women. And we had a bump in the road because we have to understand that there's going to be bumps in the road. We don't know very much about each other. Segregated societies lead to segregated thinking. And so, I, well, I happen to be an expert on whiteness because that's what we all get taught. But there's still going to be bumps, and we definitely had it, but they were so committed, and so was I, to moving through things together, and it mattered because we were traveling together as facilitators, and we would do these trainings, and we would go all across Canada, which is where I was at the time, so we'd leave Toronto, go all across Canada, and we'd enter these spaces, do mandatory trainings on LGBTQ inclusion, you know, safer spaces, and, it was with people who were largely white, largely middle-aged, largely middle-class. People, because Canada outside of this core city is very, very white. And so for the most part, they never really had to engage with somebody like me before. And I remember I had this very Grace Jones informed high top box fade and I looked very young. And I think that definitely contributed to things, but I was the best person suited for the conversation on race and racial relations. And it didn't matter how good I was. And I was good, not as good as I am now, but I was pretty good. I would get, you know, you had evaluations at the end. And the evaluations I kept getting aggressive, intimidating, unprofessional, over and over and over and over again. I mean, I'd be in this room with people for three hours and speak to them, and they wouldn't look at me. In fact, sometimes they would ask a question about something that I had said without looking at me at all. They would ask a coworker who would then redirect the question back to me, but it was so demoralizing. And I had a very normal human response at that point. I was like, you know what? I'm tired of this, this I'm done. Uh, I get paid anyway at the end of the day, so I'm just gonna show up, do the little I have to do, get paid and move on, right? with my $33,000 a year job. You know, I was like, I'll just do the, I'll just get paid. I'd love to say that that was that, and I felt very powerful in making this decision for myself. But I didn't. I felt defeated. I felt small. And I wanted to go back into the place that my mind was most exercised and practiced in going to, which was shrinking, fear. Because on the top layer, there's F you, I don't need this. Mm -hmm. And deeper still, it's, why am I not enough? And then I realized something. My relationship to this work had to be separate from their relationship to me. That there were going to be millions of people, possibly, that I could meet throughout my life, if I'm lucky. I'm gonna meet all these people. And, and am I really going to let all these people inform my relationship to what I know to be true and right and important in the world? So I made a rule for myself, because that's how I sort of got through things. And this rule was never let someone else determine what level of integrity you walk into a room with. Mm -hmm. So for me, I walk into that room, no matter what room I'm in, and I made the decision then with the fullness of who I am. Mm -hmm. If they cannot receive that, okay, that's fine. And I can have boundaries and have bandwidth and everything else, but in every room that I enter, I am as much myself as possible. Um, and whether or not people can receive me, that's, that speaks to where they are in that point in time in their life. And it makes it so that I'm not precluding what those people could be. Mm -hmm. 
And the only way I do that is when I preclude myself first and I write myself out. I don't know, I walk into every room like somebody, like everybody in that room could be the, the next champion that we need. Because I don't know. You don't have to make people see the light. You just have to be the light. That's the invitation. Right. So they ended up in a certain sense being a great teacher. Certainly it was clarifying. And I think that's it. All the people that we meet, no matter what they give or don't give, is an opportunity for us to take a moment and think about who it is that we want to be. What kind of work, what kind of impact do you want to have? Um, I have stood in the face with bigots who have made it very clear that I shouldn't exist in the world. I have been confronted and, you know, with police in a national crisis, you know, and most awful kinds of things said to me, calling me the N-word and telling me that I'm just a criminal and, you know, they'll go get a job stuff, all that stuff. And those things, they can do something to you if you're not careful, they can rearrange your insides. Mm -hmm. It does something. It's like, um, what do I want to say? Like this man on a on plane. I was late for a flight, connecting flight Minneapolis, which is a very large airport and I'm very small. <laughs> so my little legs were powering through, trying to, get to the, trying to get there. And there was a part of me that was a little bit more relaxed because I'd been flying so often that I got spoiled a little bit. It was a first class flight. I don't have to worry about whether or not there's going to be carry-on space and I don't have to go all that distance to, go to get to, you know, the back of the plane and try to figure out where to put my bag, you know, because that's always the anxiety when you're late. And mm -hmm. Anyway, I get on this flight. I'm the last person to board. And the space right over my overhead is full. To the seat across and behind me, it's empty. And I take a quick glance and there's no bag on a lap or under the seat that could potentially pop up there. And I think, great, fantastic. About to go, grab my bag, swing it up. And a smaller, older man, he pops up on the seat. He's, he's like, do you belong here? And there are these moments, I think, that we can all identify with, where everything you know crashes into the front of your skull. Mm -hmm. And you're like, How do, what, what, at what point of the 400 years should I pause? to explain to him the problem here. And I've been through situations like this enough that I understood that there had to be something on the psychic level here between me and this man mm -hmm. that language provides, that education provides, the one where you can't come back from. And so I looked at him and I looked at him, in him. And then something happened then, I don't know. Maybe I made the right call, but he started to sputter something like an apology. And he's like, uh, no, uh, something had happened where he understood what had been said. And he said, oh, no, um, I didn't. And, you know, I nodded at him, you know, really at that point, you know, our interaction is now boring. You know, and I sort of sidestep him and throw my carry-on up. The flight lands and the bell releases us from our seats and he unbuckles, he's the first one up and he grabs my carry-on and he hands it to me. And he, at that point, I, I realized he needed me to understand that he was a good person. He wasn't what, like, maybe I thought he was, based on what he had said. And I think that's such a human thing. We all want to be thought of as good people. I thought about him so often because if I had asked him what it was that he was apologizing for, I don't think he would be able to say it. And if I had asked him why he felt the need to pop up in the first place, and asked me if I belonged here. I don't think he would know that either. And this is the trade-off. And this, is, this here is the crux of the work that I seek to do on the human condition. I need us to understand what the trade-off is when we assimilate ourselves into a system, an entity that we had no hand in creating, that we were born into. We, what it means, sure, for everybody else, but for you too, what it means to forfeit a part of who you are, to become an agent of an entity that you didn't create. That trade-off to me could never be worth it because I saw someone who was trapped and it's funny because the belief is that I am. And I think from a societal level, that can be true. There are ways that we have to navigate a labyrinth, but to know the trap exists in a way is to not be trapped at all. And if 
I am to be jailed within the limits of your imagination. You have to remain there as the guard. I'm free. So you're not growing, you're not developing. There's something in you that is dying because complacency is the death of the soul. And what I realized then is that if the mind is the muscle of the soul, which is to say the closest thing to the grace of God we have within us, should such a thing exist, then the ability to think for oneself and to see the world as it is, not as you were told, and to see each other as we are, not as we were told we are. That, the, uh, the work of thinking for oneself is the holiest thing that one can do, and the opposite the most heinous. Can you talk about an insecurity that you're working on overcoming or have overcome? I am in a stage in my life where I'm casting so many lines because they're clarifying. I'm like, what is it? What is the next step for my evolution? So like since the last time we got to sit with each other, I've had to, from then to now, sort of continuously evolving, evolving the practice of rhetorical production, evolving the practice of um, being the most authentic or best version of myself that I can be, being the best kind of organizer that I can be, the best kind of friend, all those things. And in those castings, in that casting out, you know, you don't always move on everything, but the process of getting to the place where you could is very clarifying. And I thought, what if I went back to school? So I started to put things together. I started to ask questions, where would I go? And you would think with 10 years or so out of school, I've got all this work behind me, all this life experience, whether that was working at Color of Change, which is like the biggest digital racial organization in the country, um, to having you know, spoken at you know, Duke and Cornell and all these other places. But all these feelings that I hadn't really had to feel since I was around 19 or so came up. Like, why am I not good enough for this place? These institutions, why am I not smart enough? I had to go back to my GPA, which is not that great. And there was a part of me while I was in the institution for my undergrad that understood that I was, but there was the fear always. It was almost to live in these ideas or understandings of self that were diametrically opposed. Yes, I am smart, and, I am, and yet I am not smart enough. Why is it that I don't know how to exist or live in the world or maneuver through it? There's a way to go to school. You don't just go to undergrad. There were all these things that I didn't know you had to do. I had no idea how to navigate the actual world, and, I, and so it was constantly being echoed back at me. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. And when I was done with my undergrad, I felt like I was done with formal education forever. And I struggled throughout those years. I was a crown ward, uh, which means that I was a ward of the state. And I was going to school full time and working full time um, and helping to support um, my mother, who has uh, a lot of mental health issues and um, physical disabilities. And um, it was a very challenging time. And my GPA reflects that. I haven't lived with my family, my mother, since I was uh, 14 and I was in group homes. and. At some point, you just sort of, everyone just sort of agrees that you are a ward of the state. I think my mother had to waive her rights and I didn't know what that looked like from the outside in. So I don't have a language to say, well, I had these particular obstacles and that was the struggle. All I knew was the struggle. That was just my life. Um, I hadn't yet zoomed out 30 or 40,000 feet to understand that um, so much of what I was enduring and what, so much of what my mother was enduring was because of conditions that were set in motion long before I got here. All I knew was that I had personally failed. I was not good enough in this institution. I was not good enough for a family. I was not good enough to be loved. And so I had, I've had an opportunity to work through those insecurities, but not the one around the institution because I haven't needed to. I got my degree and I got the hell out of there and I never looked back. So now I'm actually in my own head, looking back, looking and feeling those 19 year old, 20 year old feelings. And they're so massive, just unbridled. 
so different than the way that I, the filters through which I feel things now. What's an example of when that comes up exactly? It's not even the thought of going back to school. It's the thought of the idea of going back to school, the idea of learning, that excites me. But the idea that I have to prove that I'm good enough, that's what I struggle with. Because I felt like I'd been doing that my entire life. And at some point, I want to dig my heels into the ground and I want to cross my arms and say, when? When is it that I'll be good enough? When is it? When is it that I'll be good enough and smart enough that I can be invited into these kinds of places? Why is it that t 10 years later after what I would hope is well, certainly work that I'm proud of, work that I can stand by 10 years or so out in the fields, creating discourse, um, informing culture, campaigns that have literally shaped massive entities like Facebook. And to have to realize that my GPA is a gate. After all this work, that's tough. And so I've had to force myself to confront these feelings and reorient it. I am not, I don't need to prove myself to the institution. I only need to see if I'm interested. And you know, it's funny because I can go and speak in front of 40,000 people tomorrow. I could do it right now. It wouldn't bring up any kind of fear or discomfort. But back then, when I was doing my undergrad, I had a hard time walking into a room that had other people in it. because I couldn't handle all those eyes on me. That's an insecurity that I overcame. I just couldn't handle eyes. It was something that was very uncomfortable for me. I didn't have much of a voice then. I wanted to shrink and be invisible. And while I wanted to be invisible, I was also so desperate to be seen, to be someone in the world. Like I was dying to live. But it has been quite the experience to revisit this sort of house of bones that I left behind, that I thought I was done with, the ivory tower, to think through the possibility of furthering my education there. So I would love to hear more about how you went from the space where you were terrified to have anyone look at you to a place where you could talk in front of 40,000 people and be as comfortable as you are. I think at some point, when you choose to live, which is to say you choose not to die, has been an act of choice. I'm not going to die. This awful thing, or these awful things that almost destroyed me didn't. And I think when you decide that you're going to live, which I did at about 16, you have to figure out what that means. And I didn't have that answer for a really long time. Can you explain what those awful things were? Sure. At 16, I was sleeping on a bench and it was maybe the seventh night that I was doing that. I had left the group homes. They were too volatile and violent. And at that point, I had been in group homes for about two and a half years. And I had no one to call. There was a group of girls and Matthew. He'll be very happy that he got brought up at all. <laughs> but, you know, there's a group of girls I used to, we used to run around with. And, you know, we'd get in all kinds of trouble together, but we didn't know how to be good friends to each other. We didn't know how to support each other. Everybody was angry and hurt for all legitimate reasons and all the right reasons, you know. It's like when you were that young, you understand there's something incongruent with words. Like there are words like justice, but there's no justice in the world. And so you have to remove the word from the reality in order to remoralize it. Otherwise it means nothing. It's just a word like democracy. Mm -hmm. But you don't have the language for that. You only know, particularly at that age, that the world in which you grew up in is not the world that other people lived in. And that your world was vastly different, less. And then you start to realize that you were seen as less. Suddenly the eyes that are on you are not just the eyes of your neighbors anymore. They're the eyes of other people. They're light eyes, blue eyes, green eyes. And they look at you very differently than you've ever been looked at before. And that's around the age when that happens because that's what high school sort of does. It takes you out of that sort of neighborhood. The only one that you knew puts you out there. 
And there had been so many things that had happened at that point uh, that brought me to this park bench, you know. Um, and at that point, I had no one to call and nowhere to go. And at that moment, the part that offended me the most was that I didn't like myself that much. I think that was the part that hurt the most. I was afraid of everything. Friends knew that if we walked into a store, you know, something had to be bought at the cash register that I would shove the money into their hand and get out. Even that interaction was too much, too much for me. And something happened then when I realized that I, before any other decision could be made, I, I wanted to know what it would be like to like myself, to really like myself that I was just tired of being afraid and small and uncomfortable and not enough. I had no idea how to do that, but it occurred to me that if I was feeling this way, that maybe other people were too. And that I had to figure out who those people were. And maybe those people would be my people, this, the forgotten, the despised. So I was 16 or so at the bench, but at this point, there was a seed that was planted me when I was 14 in these women's shelters. So we had started high school. And sure, it was tough to navigate, I think, as a kid, you know, living in a women's shelter. But the women, the women there themselves, oh my God, arguably going through one of the hardest times of their lives, fleeing domestic violence and all kinds of things. Those women were so good to me. I mean, they could see that my mother was struggling um, and managed to care for me without alienating her. Um, they would ask me to walk to the store with them, talk to me about whatever. What do you like? What are you reading? Because it was at that time where I just, in general, I think around since 11, I just could not get enough books. And then there were a couple of women who worked at the shelter who also could see things and also provided some care. And before this shelter, there was another shelter that we were in. And there was a woman there named Elizabeth and she was this middle-aged, very tall, pear-shaped woman with thick Coke bottle glasses and bangs and a ponytail. And she was one of the closest friends that I had for the time that we were together. She was the only friend that I had in the time that we were together. And she had left this really violent partner of hers who had murdered her cat. And my sister always had an easier time being in the world than I did. So she had gone to this, the JCC, the Jewish Community Center up the street and was volunteering to teach kids how to swim. And I was like, how do you do that? How do you just go somewhere and be a person? I had no idea how to do that. You know, she just assimilated. She was normative looking mm -hmm. and pleasant. And I was very surly, very surly and serious and confusing to people because they didn't know how to talk to me or what things I liked. Because it's easy if you're like, well, girls like these things. Mm -hmm. and No one knew how to read me. And so I just could not assimilate into spaces. And Elizabeth and these women at the shelter, they gave me so many tools that I hadn't picked up in those two years because I didn't know that they were tools at the time. They gave me care language, compassion, consideration. They saw me as a person that was worth pausing for, walking with, talking to. And I thought, if I can make someone else feel that way, maybe I could learn how to feel that way too. And that's what I tried to do. And I had a wealth of knowledge, not just from these women, but from the books that I was reading. I knew what courage looked like because I read all these sci-fi and fantasy novels about it. And I knew what love looked like. And I've always fantasized about love. Um, even when I was like 10 or 11, I would collect all these little Pokemon figurines. Instead of like pretending that I was throwing these Pokeballs, I would make these elaborate love stories. <laughs> I don't know what was wrong with me. But I believed um, in love. I believed in the possibility of love. I believed in romance. And I've never thought that it needed to be something that could only exist between um, lovers, unless we considered everybody potential lovers. Um, I wanted that. And I wanted it so desperately. And I was so hungry for it that I thought, 
I don't know how to have this for myself, but I know what it's like to feel it. I can be that for somebody else. And that, you know, is such a principle of organizing and activism. Mm -hmm. And that's what it was. They had set in me this foundation of what activism could be. Be for someone else what you needed the most in your most vulnerable moments. Maybe this mouth could be a voice too. And so I had to figure out how to talk. That was hard. Take the things that I felt and practice, get them up out of my throat. And it was partly because those wonderful women in those women's shelters. And it was partly because uh, of really being able to see my mom as a full person. Esther before me. Esther outside of my mother. And in, in sort of fighting for this relationship with my sister, it, it, it enabled me to become closer to something that I could be proud of. And it's a choice to live. And that's all this work really is. It's not activism. It's the work of being fully alive. Mm -hmm. Alive. Hi, everyone. We hope you're enjoying this episode so far. We wanted to take a quick moment to remind you that if you're moved by what you're hearing, you can watch the video version of this interview by subscribing to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash you. That's youtube.com slash S-T-Y-L-E-L-I-K-E-U. Now back to the episode. When do you feel the most vulnerable? I feel the most vulnerable when I am, and it's, it's a good kind of vulnerable. And it's scary, and that's how you know it's good. It's the only time it's good. When I am, it's so specific, with someone else, likely a lover, and I am fully naked because I'm always, there's a moment where I wonder if they can see what I see about my body. That is when I am the most vulnerable. Can you see the nuances? Can you see the liminality where I live? Is that beautiful enough for you? The way that it is for me. That's when I feel the most vulnerable. When was the last time you cried? I don't remember. That is not how I grieve or mourn or experience joy. Um, I almost envy those who can channel it so easily, but I do sweat. I, I train, and that is what catharsis is for me. And, you know, in this pandemic time, I haven't been able to train at the boxing club the way that I would like. It's how I regulate my emotions. Um, it's how I experience a release. So I have to get back into training and Training and sweating will help me organize my emotions so that I can be a good person in the world. But this time has taught me that there is, that evil too is a choice, or that goodness is a choice. And that evil requires a kind of performance. Evil requires the performance bigotry. How do you know a bigot is a bigot, right? right? Because of what they say, what they wear, mm -hmm. what they do. It requires a performance for us to know what it is. But goodness, that just requires purpose. It requires being in yourself and looking at people, understanding that they have the same depth and all the same majesty and all the same ugly that you do. So goodness requires purpose. It requires living in something greater than yourself, principled positivity, bringing light to the places that need it the most. And we do that just by how we treat people in the world around us. We do that by fighting for those values that we have. It means that we have to work against that kind of bigoted belief system that we're living within and fighting against. So yes, I think that evil requires a kind of performance. Goodness requires purpose. It is when you are living in service to something, to people, to hope, to love. What do you fear the most? Well, immediately, that question's twofold for me. What do I fear for the world, and what do I fear for myself? For the world, I fear what I know to be true, what I know has already happened, that people 
will live and die having never really known who they are. I think the first attack happens in our imagination, but then it's also the socioeconomic and political conditions that we live within. And I know that human spirit is undeniable and inevitable. I know that even in the worst, most horrific experiences, there were moments, however fleeting, of joy or care or compassion. But I don't, I cannot make sense of living in a world where our whole experience is shaped by and informed by a kind of cruelty and carelessness and contempt. But I know that it's happened. Mm -hmm. So that, that it could happen again, that it will happen again, is perhaps my greatest fear. It's a fear that has to get fought back against. Um, and I, you know, we do that with, with the work that we do, I do that with the work that I do for myself. You know, it's so interesting. I think before, and maybe this was what motivated me on that bench to begin with, I think before I was afraid, certainly I was afraid of not realizing who I was, but I think too I was afraid that nobody would remember that I was here. I think that's what I was afraid of when I was younger the most, that I would have been here on this planet, walked around, felt some really awful things, a couple of good ones, and that no one would even know or care. And now, I think that my greatest fear would be that I had not worked to experience all the joy that I could, because this is the thing that I learned. Joy, like hope or anything else, isn't something that just comes to you. You have to work for it, and you have to work towards it. You have to create it around you, which means you have to create the conditions around you. You have to actively seek out love. Out, you have to seek out joy. You have to seek out happiness. And so my fear is that I will be, get so caught up in managing the distractions and the crises that I won't have built in enough space in my life for those things. That's a fear that I have. I know now that that is in my power. Um, my fear for myself is that I'm going to be an ambulance chaser for the rest of my life, one crisis after the next. Mm -hmm. But I have done a good job in the past year, especially, where I have been honest. And it's because a friend, a professor, actually asked me, she said, what are the politics of your desire? And yeah, I was like, freedom. Mm -hmm. Liberation, justice. She says, no, no, no. What are the politics of your desire? And that question has been such a clarifying force for me because it's made me live in my desire. The kind of love that I want to experience, that I want to give, the kind of friend that I really want to be. And, and you have to work at those things and seek out those things as much as you seek out justice. And mm -hmm. that's the only way that we're going, ever really going to live and be useful um, in any way. And I've been doing a pretty good job of building these things up around me. Well, I hope that collectively we're all doing the world building that needs to happen to change the conditions in which we live. That was a fear that I had to speak back to because to live in love, to receive the kind of love that you want, to go after the kind of love that you long for, well, there could be a whole world of hurt at the end of that. And I have been hurt a couple of years ago in a way that required some picking up of the pieces. And you have a choice at that moment, I think, when you pick up the shattered remnants of a broken heart, you either turn them into weapons well, you turn them into art. And I chose art. I chose to live a kind of artful, um, beautiful kind of love, which meant that I had to go through a lot of pain and a lot of betrayal and let go of the life that I thought I had come into um, to build the one that I longed for. And it's, so it's been a year of loss uh, you know, moving to another country and having realizations about different friends and then the movement creating all kinds of discord and, you know, becoming very clarifying where someone you thought 
that you were aligned in values, you are not so aligned in values. My grandmother, you know, I moved her in with me. I'm almost uh, not a stranger. We had a connection, but we didn't really know each other that well. But she trusted me enough to come and die with me. You know, and that was another piece of loss. There was just a lot of loss in the last couple of years. And you can't just measure life in losses. You have to also measure it in love. So I can choose to say, you know, well, you know, my grandmother just, you know, died. And, and she did, and it sucked. It was terrible. And she didn't want to die. And I don't know if I've really made peace with that part yet, that it was happening and we were both powerless to stop it. But I also have to hold within that pain and that narrative that there was enough love between us that she could live in dignity in those last days, that there was still a leap of faith, one last leap of faith in her and in me to offer. There's just been so much loss. Um, and it's very hard not to measure one's life in losses because it's very seductive to do that. Because that anger means that you don't have to deal with all the pain. And my whole thing is the, the pain leads to possibility, which leads to power. And I've really had to move through a world of pain these past four or five years to get to a place where I could love, where I could seek it out. My life is enough now to challenge that fear that I've had in me for my entire life. So I would imagine that the last six months with everything that's been happening with Black Lives Matter and everything, it's been a pretty intense ride for you. And I'm just wondering how you maybe have like put into action what you were just talking about, about managing the crises and joy and the balance of everything. And I'm just kind of, yeah, I guess I'm just asking, is there anything specific that you'd like to say as far as the last six months, six-ish months, and how that's, how that's been for you? Oh, I mean, the last six months or so have been absolute whirlwind because there can never be a timeline because we are unpredictable <laughs> it's, um, as a people. That's one thing I love about humanity. That's why I love sports. There's always an element to it that you cannot predict. But for me, you know, I, I had a plan you know, because I'm here and now I'm a green card holder. It took a little while to get there. I worked at Color of Change uh, at the beginning of this year and around January, that was the two-year mark for me and I had already decided when I started the job that I was going to stay there for two years. And I was afraid because why would you leave a very good job doing at the highest level of the kind of work that you want to do, right, it, it, organizationally speaking? There's no other organization that I could go to to do the kind of work that I was doing at Color of Change, and particularly with a black lens. So I have this job, but something in me is telling me it's time to go. And I obviously have all the fears that anyone would have naturally, let alone the background that I come from, you know, growing up in poverty and all these things. I said to myself, you're a fool, you're a damn fool. Call back your manager and tell her you're joking. <laughs> and I said, no, be brave, future, be strong. And then two weeks after I resigned, a pandemic hit. And I was like, this was me in the mirror. I was like, you fool. <laughs> you fool. What have you done? And even still, I was like, all right. This did not go according to plan. I thought I would have a little space. You know, there would be a few gigs that came in and I had a plan. And then it all went to shit in days. I took a breath and I thought, well, I mean, look, I got dealt quite the hand. Tough one. My life's been pretty good. I've been pretty lucky. I've been lucky to always meet the right people at the right time. Or if it really came down to it, being just exactly what I needed to get through. And thankfully, I've raised the bar a little higher. And I don't know how to explain it. I'm so sorry for this really terrible thing I'm about to say. I have no, it's inarticulate, but it's almost like I see everything that's happening, whether it's on Twitter or in the community, in the news, whatever it is, everything's in blue. I can see everything in blue. And then very clearly to me, there is a red. There's a, and that is exactly where I need to live. There's um, something incongruent, something off, something that's not being said. And that's always how I know where to be. That's the chord that I have to hit. And I can only be there if I 
am present at a level that I cannot if I am stretching myself into all these different places. It was a very good job, but it was a very demanding job. So I couldn't have been as present mm -hmm. to know what needed to be said and to put it out there in the hope that it would strike the chord. And at the time, you know, that was a conversation on IG that eventually became Sunday Sermons. Mm -hmm. this, this is the thing that's not being said. Mm -hmm. And because I had been building intentionally relationships here, um, I was able to call a friend who had been here, actually, with you all, um, I know, and I said, and it was about four, and I was sitting on the toilet, <laughs> because I said, Tim, I think I'm gonna do this thing. And he was like, yeah, that's great, do it. The next day, I put the camera in front of me and just said what needed to be said. Because it's all about being for someone else, which you need and vice versa. And it's been a bit of a whirlwind ever since because suddenly my world got bigger. The education that we received in that moment makes it so, makes it so that we can never go back to what we were. What's your biggest hope? My biggest hope is the hope for me and hope for the world. And actually, these two things are very united. I hope that I can live in a time where measurable change happens at ground zero, and that's for Native people, for Black people, and for trans people. And I hope that the work that I'm doing and the person that I am it contributes to that. I hope that we live in a world where our strength isn't determined by how much suffering we can endure. I hope that I know, find, and seek, and I am I, uh, the kind of love that alters me fundamentally and irrevocably, and I hope that I can be the same for someone else. I hope that my sister always knows that she can call me whenever, wherever, and that I will be exactly what she needs. I hope that my mother understands and will experience the kind of care that she has always deserved from me and that I will be successful in positioning myself in the world so that I will always be able to take care of her and that she will get so close to me at some point because she's gonna have to live close to me, uh, that she'll be sick of me. You know, I hope that I am the kind of parent or caregiver that is more of a guide and a guardian and that I have to figure out how to do that while also being a guard because of the kind of world that we live in. I hope that I'm wrong about some of my predictions that all of this was living in the backlash of the first black man president. And that if the predictions that I feel inside of me now are accurate, then we will have a black woman president. And that I'm wrong about what the backlash will be then. Because at the moment it will be great and it will be hideous. I hope that I'm wrong about that. And I hope um, that healthcare becomes free and accessible, that student debt is eliminated, that education is free and without gates, and that we defund the police and that money goes into those resources that I just named. I hope that we understand that when we look at these children, these 500 children whose parents we can't locate, I hope that they're given every single thing that they need. I hope that they're taken care of for the rest of their lives and not thrown into a system to disappear. I hope that we understand that when we look at every single person, that they have everything that we have in us and more, that they're just as complicated, just as nuanced, just as deserving, just as desirous, just as longing, and that we treat them that way. And I hope that we understand that our job the purpose that I've referenced a million times is simply this, to defend the dead and the dying and to be liberators of the living. And I hope that we live up to that and live in that with as much love, uh, compassion and care, curiosity and consideration as we can muster up in these bones of ours. That's what I hope. So last question, why in your body why in your skin? Why in your journey? Why is it a good place to be? <laughs> it's more than that. It's the best place to be. Because there's only one of me. And everything that makes me me is because of every person that I have met 
that I've experienced, and they're also me, that I'm only as beautiful as they can, as they are rather, and they have been so incredibly beautiful and so good to me, and so I wear them too. I wear every experience that I've had, every scar, every hurt, every moment of love and every joy, and that every time that I walk into a room, I'm as much an offering to people as they are to me. And what a gift that is, that exchange. And that I fought to be here. I fought to be in the person that I am, in the personhood that I've embodied. And that the greatest gift we have to give is time. That's the greatest gift we have to give. And each and every one of us has spent our lifetime in this thing. So that too is part of the offering. And every time that we speak, every time that we share space, every single thing is possible. Every kind of love you can imagine, the kind of joy you can imagine, every kind of beauty that you can imagine, it's all possible the moment that we are together. And I wear that in every inch of me. We hope you were inspired by this episode. Until next week, that's it from me, Elisa. And me, Lily. If you were touched by this story, please take a moment to share the episode with any friends or family who could benefit from understanding that they are enough as they are. And if you agree that facades separate us and being radically honest brings us together, please help spread the movement for radical self-acceptance by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. Each month, we'll send a free copy of our book, True Style is What's Underneath, The Self-Acceptance Revolution, to one of our podcast reviewers. We can't skip ahead to a happy ending or live inside a photoshopped image or an Instagram filter. There is no finding oneself when glossing over the truth.